Hello, and welcome to the third season of the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This show is all about pioneers, the rule breakers and game changers who show all of us the route to a better future. We might be in season three, but the context remains stubbornly unchanged. We're grappling with the economic consequences of Brexit, and we're trying to see beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Business as usual doesn't really exist in the way that it used to, yet many of our most powerful businesses don't seem to have got the memo. It's time to embrace a radically different model for leadership in our largest organisations, pioneer leadership. My name is Philip Clark. I'm more excited than ever about the power of pioneer leadership to transform our business culture, society and economy, because we all need to learn to play a long game, disrupt the status quo and chase a more purposeful future. And you know what? I'm so convinced of this that I wrote a book about it. It's cleverly titled Pioneers Wanted, a manifesto for radically ambitious leadership. And you'll find it at pioneerswanted.com. Now, on this podcast, I interview pioneers from all walks of life, exploring their outlook, enjoying their character, admiring and learning from their audacity. And in this episode, I was joined by David Hyatt, You'll know David, he's an amazing communicator, entrepreneur, social activist, and he founded great businesses like Howie's and Hyatt Denham, as well as, famously, the Do Lectures and Publications. We discuss the importance of understanding your story, of asking brilliant questions, and the good things that happen when we chase our dreams. You'll notice that this episode doesn't have audio that's quite up to our usual standards. We were a victim of Storm Arwen hitting the West Wales coast, in the middle of recording, but I know you'll find it compelling nevertheless. Enjoy the episode. Believe it or not, we do do some prep for this show, and a researcher and I invest some time making sure that we're well informed about the guests we host. But when we did the research for today's guest, we were blown away. Initially sceptical, quickly impressed, genuinely inspired. Let me read some of our research notes. This is how people talk about our guest today. David has a cult following and is in demand all over the world. David has been described as a marketing genius. Nobody understands branding as well as this guy. Bring a notepad and a dictaphone. You will want to remember what this guy says. Now, we're not really interested in the cult of celebrity here on Pioneers Wanted, but we do get excited by pioneers, people who, through their vision, self-belief, determination and resilience, change the game for everyone. People who shift the structures and systems that frame our lives. People who use business to change our expectations of what's possible and who leave the world and all of us in it in a better place as a result. So let's see if David qualifies. He founded and scaled the Howie's brand and in negotiating an M&A process with a global clothing behemoth, he lived to tell the tale. His denim brand, Hyatt Denim, is a showcase for how businesses driven by values can be both socially impactful and commercially successful and operate with both local and global impact. His ideas festival, The Do Lectures, is considered one of the best in the world by people like The Guardian, and its message of creativity, ambitious positivity, has inspired over 150 million people around the world, from, as he puts it, a little cowshed in Wales. And if that wasn't enough, along the way he has been a beneficiary of the Meghan Markle effect. This guy has some stories. So welcome to the show, David Hyatt. Thank you very much. That's uh, one hell of an introduction. But yeah, you know, we are in West Wales and I mean, the good thing is like no one really comes down for meetings, so we get left alone and um, commute is about two minutes. So we do have a full day to go and um, uh, do some stuff that we care about. It's very upsetting that you've done so much. It's a bit like reading those tombstones in an old church where um, where they celebrate the life of an epic Victorian. You know, he founded schools, he invented vaccines, he revolutionised <laughs> military conduct. And you you've done so much that rather than do my normal desert island discs type thing i thought we'd 
mix it up a bit. I actually genuinely need to buy some jeans. And um, so today I went on the Hyatt Denim website to go and buy some jeans and I couldn't. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, instead, it showed me uh, uh, some uh, refuse and recycling centers or dumps uh, near my house. So why don't you tell me about your denim business, about your jeans, and maybe a bit about the business and philosophy behind what you're doing in Cardigan? I mean, a quick backstory to Hyatt Denim is it's really a story about a town. And, you know, we live in a small town in West Wales, 4,000 people, and, you know, sort of closer to Ireland and then even to London. But it had Britain's biggest jeans factory. And it made 35,000 pairs of jeans a week, every week for 40 years. And, and in 2002, that factory closed. And, you know, 400 world-class makers suddenly had nothing to make. At the time, we were doing Harry's and we were just in the process of maybe selling it and maybe leaving it. And so it would take a little while before we could start Hyatt Denim. But the combination of the skills in the town of being able to make jeans and you know, myself and Claire's ability to go and you know, build brands, um, if we could bring those two things together, but something else was in play at the same time, and that was the internet. And so suddenly we could go and tell our story direct to consumer, which meant that you know we could afford you know the, the high cost of great materials and also the high cost of people who actually have great skills at making jeans. So it was kind of um, a little bit of luck, right place, right town, right people right moment but we also want to see if we can go and get 400 people their jobs back but we also know that you know jeans because they are the most worn you know trouser on the planet their environmental impact is huge so we want to see if we could go and make the lowest impact jeans in the world and so that's the quest is can we get the town making jeans again and and can we do it with the planet and considering the planet uh, as we go, you know, we have to be responsible in terms of the planet. So, so you know, the, the reason the website was closed today is it's Black Friday, which is a celebration, a celebration of buying things that you don't actually need, which the planet can, like, ill afford, to be honest. It seems that today my inbox is a celebration of, of consumerism, to be honest. Everybody seems to think I need something from someone. In fact, everything from everyone today it was um it was a stark reminder going on your website so carding is not an accidental place to set up this business and we talked a little bit about the philosophy behind what you're trying to achieve people might have seen on social media uh, the photos of the outside of your your factory i think it's a white factory with big black lettering with the question asking you know how can we be lower impact today than we were yesterday or something along those those lines yeah I I think it's interesting when, like, most companies have a mission statement. And uh, actually, if you think about a mission, mission statement, it's kind of like a final, it's a finality. Do you mean it's like, we're going to go to Mars? You go, well, with a question, it's a start. Do you mean, and so can we be lower impact today than we were yesterday? It's a great question. And, and I think, like, in a way, the best brands in the world ask great questions. Can can we make something simpler? Can, can we make it easier? You know, can we do something that no one else has done before? I think a mission question is a really interesting thing just because it, it's ongoing. It's a start and it has energy and it pushes you every day because it's the same darn question. And I imagine that it galvanizes everybody who's chasing the same thing that you are. Yeah. And, I, and the thing is, it, it's... It's also honest in as much as there's like, like we know we're not there yet. We know we've got to do something today. And, you know, if it's just 1% better today, I mean, if you did that for an entire year, you'd be 3,800%, like 37 times better than you were at the start of the year. So like falling in love with those small incremental gains, I mean, every, every company wants to go and like knock the ball out of the park. Actually, when you look at it from a data point of view, knocking the ball out of the park is such a rare event. And but getting to base camp one is common. I mean, like you know, getting to the first base is common. And so you can completely build on your mission if you just 
you could just come at it each day and just go, hey, we're going to get the first base today. Fine. Do that again tomorrow. And you do that tomorrow. And when you sort of compound all that incremental gain, it's massive. And that's what I'm kind of interested in. So this often feels, um, and actually a number of the organizations and initiatives you kicked off, feel like a social, philosophical, purposeful mission with a a commercial entity perhaps attached. Tell us a little bit, we won't talk about uh, uh, Hyatt Denim uh, throughout the pod, but for people who don't know your genes, who don't know your product, they're not like the stuff that most people buy most of the time. Tell us a bit about what's special in your product and how that reflects your intention with the business. Well, I mean, I guess the bigger picture, and this will give you an understanding of why we're able to make you know one of the best genes in the world, is 99% of the companies out there in the denim market are wedded to the wholesale business. They have to give half their margin away to the shop. That's the business they grew up with, and that's what you know the business that they depend on. And so they have to go and make that gene in the cheapest place they can. They also have to use the cheapest materials they can because half the margin is going away from them. And for me, like having a direct consumer brand, and bless it, I love it, is you know, we're able to go and pick the best materials on the planet with using the best mills, taking microplastics out of genes, organic denim, like salvage from Japan. I mean, there are really incredible mills that make some of the best denim on the planet. And most brands can't use those mills because their margin doesn't allow it. And so like for me, like having a direct to consumer brand means that you can afford to put as much quality into the product as you possibly can and still be a business. And so we're making the best genes. I mean, you've got to understand like, Malcolm Gladwell said about um, being a grandmaster at chess, you have to do 10,000 hours. Like our grandmasters have done 20,000 hours, you know, 30,000 hours, 40,000 hours, 50,000 hours. Like, so the skill level in this town is absolutely incredible. And we can go and pick the best materials on the planet. And you put those two things together, and all we have to do, all I have to do is go and tell the world we actually exist. But, you know, the, the Levi's of the world, the Wranglers of the world, they're wedded to this, this wholesale business. And they can't, they can't use the materials that I can use. And it's incredible. They would love to have a direct-to-consumer business. But the reason they can't is they're so hugely wedded to the wholesale business. It's the addiction of legacy. I understand. We'll come back, I guess, to, to the denim business. I'm, I'm keen. You're in Wales now. Uh, I'm keen to, to get a sense of... Uh, you grew up in in the valleys, if I understand right, and I'm keen to get a sense of of the forces that shaped your outlook, your character. You know, not a whole desert island discs kind of vibe about growing up, but but those years are influential and they shape you and your outlook, and it shaped, I think, your entrepreneurial outlook. So maybe tell us a little bit about that if you think it's relevant. Yeah, no, I think when I sort of grew up in the the South Wales valleys, you know, Claire's um, granddad was a coal miner. My granddad was a coal miner. And and so it's like the valleys were like tough. I mean, like great humor, hard work, but like the coal mines made the valleys. And I remember we used to go to the, to school on what we used to call the bus, affectionately known as the Iron Lung, because when it went around corners, it used to scrape the the metal on the road. And so every morning we would go to school, and we would pass one of the coal pits. At the morning, they were all the miners were there, clean, you know, all clean faced, you know, with their sandwich tins. And then at three thirty or whatever it was, when we come back from school, they'd be on the other side of the road, um, you know, blackened faces and holding the empty sandwich tin. And we saw them every morning, until one day they weren't there. They literally one morning, I don't know, it was it Tuesday or Wednesday? They literally weren't there, and. And what I was seeing out of the window was a entire industry being taken out of a town. And, and it left, you know, like that emptiness. Suddenly all the coal miners had no jobs. And suddenly all the shopkeepers had no customers. 
And suddenly all the pubs had no customers. So it was like the, the slow car crash that you see in slow motion and all the glass flying ever so poetically through the air. It was literally, you know, that community had come to an end. And it was a sad, sad, slow death for a community that was once like so vibrant. So I grew up in, you know, I'd seen that. So, and if you think about that from where I suddenly came down and we lived, started living in a town in Cardigan Town, West Wales, super lovely. And then all of a sudden its biggest employer suddenly closed. And that really galvanized me in terms of, I'm, I'm there going, hmm, wow. Because I originally wrote the Hyatt Denim plan and we were going to go make in China just like everybody else. And I wrote the plan and I, and I just put the plan to a side for one year because I just, I didn't have the reason to go and do it. I knew I could do it. I'd already proven that I could do it. But there was no, I, I didn't know why I wanted to run around the, the same track twice. And then I got a phone call from the designer one day, uh, the old designer from Howie's, and he said, like, well, why aren't you doing the plan? I said, well, I, I don't really know if I want to go and do that again. I, I don't know if I've got a, the mojo for it. And he said, but Dave, it's not actually about you. It's about your town. Because if you don't do it, all those skills are going to die. Because you, know, you, you didn't pass the baton on to the next generation. And it was like a, a, like a lightning rod through me. And, and I just went, oh, okay, this isn't about me. This is about you know, a town making jeans again. And I, I could go and run around that track for the town. So let's fill in some of the gaps then, because we're here today. You're in Cardigan. You're closed today on Black Friday, but you're scaling and you're creating employment for more and more grandmasters and taking your story out to the world. And, and your formative years were spent in that context, the sort of post-mining context in the South Wales Valleys. When did your pioneer character start to form? When, when, when did it start to come out? When did you become an originator of things? I was really obsessed in the early days with like sports brands. And so my bedroom, I mean, this was around 12, 13 years of age. My bedroom was covered apart from windows and the door handle was covered literally in posters. So everything from, I don't know, Adidas to Puma to any, anything that you know, I was into at the time, I was so obsessed with this. And I'd always had like that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, even like when I was in school, like my first school was two miles out of town. And so what I went and did was of an evening, I would go to the wholesaler and buy tip tops and I'd freeze them at night. And then in my Adidas Holdall bag, I would smuggle them into school. And then at lunchtime, I would sell them. And it was a massive business because I had a really very captive market until the headmaster could see suddenly see this like sea of plastic litter and and the that litter trail led to me and then I I got banned from selling tip tops in school. So I always had that like itch to and enjoyed selling. But the brand thing was definitely something where I went, Oh, I really there's something deep here. And, you know, like 13, I was going on a train, I had a tie on, I was going to trade shows, I was, you know, like sneaking in, I was getting on every stand, I'd come back with all the brochures, I was writing to companies, you know, with documents, and one company bucked, a, I do, which I don't think is really going anymore, but they, they invited me up to do a presentation to their marketing department at 13, and because I had all these ideas and, going, and I just went through, here's 27 ideas. I think you should do them. If you don't do them, I think you're not going to survive. I literally, I don't know what I was thinking about because I, I, would, I wouldn't have the guts to do say that to anybody right now, but I was there literally. The tie was bigger than I was. I mean, it was a big fat tie. I didn't even know how to do a tie. It was this, this blob around my neck and I would went there and they went, thank you, thank you very much, Mr. Hyatt. I'm going, God, I've never been called Mr. before. 
the fearlessness of youth, I guess. And in the very yeah. unlikely circumstance that there are any headmasters listening, I had the same story uh, at my school, buying wholesale food and trying to sell it. And my first guest in season one of the show was Angus Thurwell, who founded Hotel Chocolat, and he had the same story from his school. So I, I got a feeling if you want to if you want to invest in something, it didn't work that way for me. But if you want to invest, find people who, who uh, it's about the one thing you can do as a kid in school. You can go and buy food and sell it to hungry teenagers. So yeah, yeah. Um, so you were you as you say you were into your sports brands. You were fearless. And you pushed yourself into those conversations. Perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise, but you spent a while in advertising. You found yourself in that creative environment. What did that teach you? Yeah, I mean, a sort of quick backdrop before that was at 16, I, I persuaded my mum and dad that me doing A-levels would be a disaster. And, and they agreed with me. And so but I said, I really want to go and start a sports brand, 16. My dad, half his life savings, bless him. You know, he had a thousand pounds. He lent me five hundred pounds to go and start this company within six months. I was you know, out of business. Um, the coal miners had gone on strike, and you know, so that was kind of like the end of that. And he said to me, "What did you learn?" And and I said, "Well, I I learned I love it." And he said, "Well, okay, that's brilliant. That's a really important thing to learn." He said, "Now, uh, I would like you to go and learn to be good at it, so you can keep doing it." And I went, yeah. So I went back to school, did my A-levels, went to college, got thrown out for no, doing no work. And at 21, ended up at Saatchi and Saatchi. After a year and a half on the dole, I wasn't very good. Then I got reasonably good. And then I got much better. And so I, I ended up, you know, 21, Saatchi and Saatchi. It was the world's most awarded advertising agency. And I was given a job as a copywriter. I couldn't spell. I thought a colon was like an illness. And I thought a semicolon was a complication of that Ill illness. And, but they really just loved ideas. And so they didn't care what school you went to, if you got kicked out of college, if you were scruffy, or you know, if you spoke with a funny accent, they literally gave no shits. And all they were interested in is, have you got an idea? And if you've got an idea, uh, nobody else does you're valuable to us and i loved it and i really super enjoyed it and the smartest people i mean very driven very smart very fun loving and it was super great i was really lucky it was like a, going to the university of ideas i got chucked out of one university and i got you know, allowed into another one <laughs> and um in that business, you must have stumbled across. But by the way, for anyone who hasn't read any of your books or who doesn't follow you on, I follow you on LinkedIn, you have a, a really lovely writing style. So um, you obviously learned some great stuff and it brought some stuff out of you in your time there as a copywriter. You must have come across some wonderful brands, inspiring people who elevated and brought to life brands that were really impactful and meaningful for you what your time at Saatchi did it feel like it was a time that was equipping and preparing and teaching you to build your own brand or was it just a, a rush no it was the great thing about being unemployed for a, a year and a half is you don't want to lose your job do you mean so you really do want to get good at your job and so we went there we so like hungry to learn and and the great thing about advertising is there's so many bright people and they were like, they were happy to like spend time with you and, and show you how to go and do stuff. And it was incredible. It was, I mean, the best people, the, the literally the best. I, I sort of had the initial dream of going to start a brand and in seven or eight years at Saatchi's, I'd sort of like got so into like learning the craft of writing that I've forgotten that. But the interesting thing is, and this is like the oddness of stories, is, you know, I think about Ali Dassler in '54. He invented the, the studded football boot and he was Hungary versus West Germany in the final. And he, he only gave the boot to West Germany. Hungary were favorites. And lo and behold, it rained and West Germany won. So I was that kind of geek. Our CEO at Sarchi's came in one day and said, I'm, I'm going to go and buy Adidas. And I'm going, oh, 
right, okay. I mean, he was already the coolest guy around. He wore jeans, smoked a big fat cigar. I think he was going out with a famous uh, Hollywood actress. And and now he came in and said, I'm going to go and buy Adidas. And I'm going, oh my God, this is this is unreal. So we pitched for uh, Adidas for six months. And Charles and Morris and Louis Dreyfus had suddenly fallen out over something, um, probably something to do with Adidas and shares and things. And so we weren't ever going to win the pitch. So the next week when we found out that we didn't win the pitch because Lou Dreyfus just faxed uh, Sachi and Sachi saying, sorry to tell you that you didn't win the pitch. I took a £20,000 pay cut and I went to work for the winner of the pitch. Because at that point, I sort of realized the original dream was to go and build an amazing sports brand. And I'm going, right, I just want to be around Adidas as much as I can right now to go and learn as much as I can. And so I kind of left, even though I was having a brilliant time and I was working with the incredible art director, Ajab Samurai Singh, who was uh, one of my best mates. He was my best man at the wedding. But even so, I had to leave in order to go and do the thing that I originally set out to do. And I was going to start my own brand. Brilliant. So you were you were chasing Adidas. You had this experience at Saatchi, which clearly shaped you and, and uh, inspired you. And then, so that's your journey into, into Howie's. What is it that you spotted that others didn't? What was that? Was there a big aha? Was there a big frustration, a big problem that needed solving? Or is it more prosaic than that? Well, it's kind of like when you sort of think about it in this way was I went to work on Adidas and I felt there was a, a more human brand voice that was missing from the arena. And, and I set about writing that kind of voice and, and I kept taking it to my boss and he kept saying no. And so in a year and a half, I literally got so little ads through it was ridiculous and in the end i had to leave it was like pointless and even though he offered me creative directorship of adidas america i said well there's no point me being in america because man i'm just going to be faxing new stuff that you're going to turn down because i spent a year and a half or wherever it was writing ads for you and you you literally didn't buy one but the interesting thing is that wad of paper all those rejected ads was the voice and that voice became Howie's. So I literally took those thoughts and you know the way of questioning about this world and I put those kind of you know like slogans on a t-shirt and it wasn't like oh let's go and start a brand. She's got I just want this voice to be out there. And we launched four uh, t-shirts. One of them sucked and didn't sell but the three flew. And and I just went, ah, oh, that's interesting. So other people are into this voice, and it's not just me. And that's literally as homespun as it was. It was the frustration of I wanted to get this voice out there, but actually the, my boss said, no, that's not the right voice. But actually I resisted that, and, and I put that voice out there, and, and that became how he's doing so just to put this in context for everyone, this was mid-90s. So in the UK, the internet was here, but it was mostly locked in academic institutions. If you had an email, then that was quite unusual at that kind of time. And you ran with Howie's for the, the best part of a decade, I think, um, before uh, you sold the business. What do you wish you'd known? I mean, it's different doing that today, I suspect, but really interesting to have a voice that you want to share with the world in a pre-internet environment how did you go about doing that and what what did you wish you'd known in hindsight well it's i mean hindsight's like a funny way to run the business but i mean we were early and the internet was super clunky and like starting businesses now you know you have all these incredible tools you know you can build a website by the afternoon you can have instagram you can have facebook you can have twitter I mean, you have to like that stuff literally was not available to us but I'd built up a wholesale um, accounts with lots of skateboard, BMX, really good shops. And our T-shirts were getting out there and, and they were like popular amongst the riders. And 
I sort of done some research on organic um, cotton and, and actually I found out like, you know, growing cotton was one of the worst things you could do for the environment. And so, you know, shifting to organic cotton made a lot of sense to me. And so I phoned up all the shops and said, look, um, our t-shirts are no longer going to be $19.99. They're going to be, you know, retailing for $27.99 because we're shifting to organic. And by the afternoon, after phoning all the shops, I'd lost all my wholesale business. You know, most people spend half a decade, a decade, and they lose their business. But I did it in one afternoon. And so I had no choice but to go and start a catalog. And at that point, what I was doing was starting to have a direct conversation with our customers. And that was the turning point. So how is, and how is, it's a really interesting story. There's some really interesting things. I think that how is inspired elsewhere, but there's so much to cover. We can't get into it very much, but, but around 2005, 2006, you got an approach for the business. We don't have time to get into a lot of the detail, but. I don't want to ask kind of what lessons you learned, but it was clearly an experience and an experience that you've talked about since you stayed with the business for a while. So talk us through a little bit of that, perhaps that roller coaster. I imagine there are some highs and there are some lows when, when you get approached by a big, hairy business like that. Yeah. And to us, we, we were growing far too fast. And because of my inexperience, you know, growing at 300 to 400% a year, we were just literally I didn't have the experience to go right now. What we should do is slow down. And rather than slowing down, I was putting my foot on the accelerator pedal. So I was, I was literally making it worse for us because our cash flow, you know, the amount of money we needed in order to buy new stock was just getting bigger and bigger. And we weren't getting the cash flow to enable the growth. So what I thought, you know, was the sensible thing to do is go and find a business partner somebody who had the money, had the skills, had the ability to scale and help us scale. And so we put, started the conversation with a bunch of people and we put the word out that you know, we wanted to go and attract some you know, money. And the interesting thing is how many amazing people came to us and said, We're, you know, we'd love to talk. And so you know, there were people like Steve Case who, who started AOL, um, and merged with Time Warner, and you know they wanted to do something. Um, PPR, Uwong Gucci, Yves Saint and Puma, they got in touch with us and said they would love to do something. They selected two brands in the world they would like to buy. One was Quicksilver, and one was Howie's. You know, the J- Japan's richest um, guy wanted uh, was interested. So we had a, we had all these like amazing people, companies that were interested. And in the end, we settled with Timberland because they understood you know, the importance of whales. And they, they really were at that time, you know, super keen on um, trying to create a low impact um, business. And so we eventually did the, you know, the deal with them. But it was kind of bittersweet. And, and the thing is, in, on reflection, what you have to understand is that this was in 2008. And the economy was taking a dive and, and Timberland were suddenly faced with having to make just like an annoyance in the corner. You know, when the parents get sick, the child doesn't get fed. And so we sort of done this deal in good faith, but then suddenly they neither had time for us or money for us. We were actually worse off. And you know, I tried to buy the business back, but what I didn't realize at the time, you know, Timberland was actually for sale. Because, you know, PPR, who are now called Karen, they'd approached us and said, look, just get the business back and, and we'll, we'll invest in you. But because they were in that 90-day window where they couldn't do anything, they couldn't, you know, even if they wanted to sell Howie's back to us, they couldn't do it. So it was, it was, it was kind of funny because we were slightly trapped within our own company and um, you know, we had less independence and, and actually we didn't have any money to go and grow it either. So without being like in any way sort of bitter it's just kind of like the timing was wrong and sometimes you can do the right thing with the right people but the timing can be wrong and and it turns out to be not such a good thing so one of the things that anyone who's read any of your writing get a sense of the way you want to engage in the world and the things that matter to you in the world when you came out of the the time 
with Howie's, had that that roller coaster changed your either your outlook on business or your outlook on mashing together social purpose or ethical sustainability with with business? Were you fatigued and exhausted, or were you were you ready to chase something new? We, we've got a little bit. I know you said you had the plan for Hyatt Denham reasonably early, but did you need to take some time for yourself to recover? Yeah, no, I think it was it wasn't a good time because I was angry. I wasn't angry at anyone else. I was angry that I didn't just plow on and do it without anybody else because we were absolutely flying. And if we'd had greater confidence, we could have we didn't need anybody else. We needed money, but there was always money out there. And we could have kept our independence, raised some money and cracked on. My frustration, not with anybody else, but with myself, was that we half completed the mission. And that was unsatisfying. And so it was so I had more money than I'd ever had, but I was, you know, less happy than I'd ever been. And so I was it was definitely bittersweet. And you know, I stopped sleeping, I was probably enjoying a glass of wine too much. And but then I just resolved to go, I'll just go running. And so me and my young uh, dog we went running. I think in the end, he just said, oh, Dave, man, haven't we run enough? But I was still, I couldn't separate Howie's from me. And I sort of wrapped up my identity in it so much that this company you know, was carrying on without me, but it was me. And so that took a couple of years for me to resolve that. And it was hard. And it was because and any founder out there right now will know it's almost a rite of passage. You go and sell it, you know, to a company. You're a little baby. You sell it. You, know, you say to yourself, nothing's going to change. And then on the second day, everything changes. And and that's what happens because actually the thing that you valued the most wasn't actually money, was your independence. And whether you like it or not, your independence has been sold, and you sold your independence for a thing called money. So I definitely had to resolve issues, but as tough as those days were, is I'm sort of thankful for them because right now is like I'm a much more informed person, a much more patient person, I'm much more interested in building a team, I'm much more interested in like going and thinking about the long term, and I'm not in a rush to go and get anyone else's money. So I'm a much more settled and happy entrepreneur than I was the first time around. So we're talking at a time when there's a big storm front headed your way uh, offshore. But both these stories, that the Howie's story and the Hyatt Denham story, got hit by a big wave too. Howie's, you say, 2008 financial meltdown soon after you were acquired. Tail end of the 2010s, COVID was difficult for everyone. I suspect that it was particularly difficult for luxury brands, particularly difficult for an emerging business. So you're in it for the long term, but you faced some real existential challenges, I suspect, as everybody did. So tell us, give us a sense of where where things were in the business coming into the crisis and some of the challenges that you faced over the last 18 months, 24 months. When you're starting like a business again, it's, I don't know if you had uh, friends who bought crap cars when they were teenagers and they were always breaking down and you'd always spend your early teens pushing their darn cars and and actually when you start in a business again it's a bit like that because you're pushing your mate's car who's broken down and he just needs a push and you're pushing it and you're pushing it and the initial push is super hard and then you get a bit of momentum and you get to a point where you can't actually push the car any faster and then you go like put the bloody thing in gear and off he goes. And so starting off again, nobody knows you. You're, you are going to try and get your town making uh, jeans again. So you're trying to build a global denim brand. And and basically, you spend all your marketing you know, money on a coffee machine. So initially, it's super hard. But you keep going. You have persistence. And so we, we did that. And we got lucky. And we definitely had a huge amount of luck in terms of when Meghan Markle wore our jeans and that literally put us on the world map and so at that point we had to go and 
you know, go and invest in a bigger factory because the demand we had a, you know, a year's you know, waiting list of a year for jeans, which is too much. You had that much impact on your business. Yeah, it was massive. And, you know, like there's two stresses, right? There's not enough orders and too many. And both are stressful. And so you have to resolve both. But so we got through that and we grew and we got an amazing team. We got an amazing factory. You know, we make it one of the best jeans in the world. And like, and I know I'm biased, but I know I'm also super accurate on that. And so the coming into COVID, to answer your question, was we were growing and we were growing and we were profitable and it was nice. And, and the thing for me was I always kind of want to keep the growth not too much, not too little. And, you know, you kind of want that Goldilocks in the middle. And we were definitely in a good place. And then, of course, suddenly COVID happened and you go, oh. And remarkably, we've come through it somehow. We grew during COVID year and we're probably going to grow this year again. And we've been profitable last year. Um, looks like we're going to be profitable this year. But it's been tough. And I know people out there right now will be going, they probably had perhaps the two toughest years of their business life. And you know, I feel for founders because they probably furloughed everyone but themselves. They probably haven't had a break in two years. And they're, they're feeling like trying to get to Christmas and just going, oh, my God, if I can just limp over like a wet lettuce across the, the finishing line, get to Christmas, have a glass of wine, pull my feet up and watch some crap TV. and. I kind of, um, I have deep empathy because it has been like that. And so we've come out of it in reasonably strong place because we, we have a great product, we have a great story, and we also have learned the art of not having a marketing budget. I'd love one, but we've learned to go and, you know, these tools, you know, whether they're Twitter and Instagram like any of those tools, those motorways for stories in the sky to go on. We've learned them and because we've had to. And so it's been, it's been interesting, but I'm hoping that like next year is a place where we can then go back to thrive. Who knows? But you, know, you never know because every week is a different week and there's challenges that come up and you, you never thought that would happen. And then suddenly it happens and you go, okay. But I'm sort of confident and I'm optimistic. I'm naively optimistic always, but I'm, you know, sort of, that's just my nature. Well, look, I think you need quite a lot of that. So how many uh, grandmasters do you have? What's the size of the business today? We're about 30 people in total. We're probably going to turn over £2 million. We're growing gently at the moment. It feels like we're in a good place. You know, we've probably come out of covid a little bit stronger than most it's it's still super tough but i think having a great story having a product that's probably better than the competitions is you've got a chance at that point you still need to be on the money in terms of marketing you've got to tell the story this is the world of storytelling and so we have to be a great storyteller. We have to tell the story as well as we make the genes. So you're building carefully and in a considered fashion. You're a long-term thinker. You've expressed that. You've talked about your naive optimism. That naive optimism has clearly got a much bigger audience. And what you've built with the do lectures, the response I think you've had to to your writing and to the content that you're putting out there to the platform that you've built is amazing. I don't know if it's taken you by surprise, but for people who don't know kind of how you got into it, I think it was inspired by some, some interactions you have with Patagonia and a program of theirs, if that's right. Tell us about the journey into that and because that's a phenomenal thing in itself. Yeah, it's an interesting backstory, a combination of things, but very briefly, it was, you know, we'd had some good interactions with Patagonia and we'd done a website and, and they went, oh, my God, like that website um, inspired you know, Patagonia to go and do something similar. I wrote a piece on the journey of a carrot, which inspired um, Patagonia to do the Footprint Chronicles. And we came you know, pretty close to maybe doing a deal with Patagonia in terms of, and, and Patagonia was definitely our 
our first choice. It didn't happen because they had things that they needed to, to focus on. But they'd invited me to their tools camp, which was how to go and teach you, know, you to be an activist. And they do, do it once every two years. It's only 80 people. It's super, it's super rare to be invited to that kind of thing. And they invited me, and I just couldn't go at the time because I was so knee-deep into Howie's, and I just couldn't get away. But I said, don't worry, I'll watch the talks online. And they said, well, no, we don't actually record the talks. And I went, ah, oh, God, that's a shame. All that knowledge just for 80 people. I mean, it would be pretty cool if you shared that, you know, that knowledge with loads of people so they could go and be activists. And at the same time, a friend texted Ming Claire at night and it just said a quote. He said, don't just stand there, do something. Dick dastardly. So that sort of you know, stoked a conversation at the dinner table and eventually led to the do lectures. And we did a trial version called the Little Big Voice Lectures. And we suddenly did this thing as a test, a beta test. And we realized that, God, it does something that perhaps most other conferences don't do. I mean, it's super intimate. It's there to help you and guide you and, and not just you know, there to sell to you. So we started the Do Lectures in 2008. And, and the first five years were a bit of a struggle. I mean, trying to sell tickets to an event that nobody had ever heard of. And then slowly what was happening was 100 people would come each year and attend. And they would go and tell their friends. And so the word got out. And like anything, it's like you think these things are overnight successes. And you look at TED, like everyone knows TED, but the first time TED happened, it didn't happen for another six years. And everybody knows Burning Man. By the first five years, there was like a half a dozen people around you know, a bonfire. You know, like, and you wouldn't think there would be suddenly one day 70,000 people in a desert. So what I learned from those is actually these things take time. And now... We're in a position where, you know, even though we purposely don't go out and try and get publicity for the do lectures, because the thing that's happened now is the word has got out and the demand for the tickets is something that we literally can't, there's much more demand than supply. There's only a hundred tickets each year. So we get oversubscribed. There's a waiting list. You know, there's a waiting list for next year's event. There's a waiting list for the year after's event. But it's a super small, intimate event, like no other, but 150 million views of talks. And it's probably closer to 200 million because I haven't looked in, in a while. So you can be small and huge. And I kind of like that. I like, I like that idea of being a small giant. Like the, it's almost like the pirate ethos. I mean, you can have a huge impact um, just through you know, a small army. Well, that's, that's why we get excited about pioneers, because the systems and structures around us change. And while we're chasing something small, it's so meaningful. Other people follow us on that journey. So beyond your world, then, the world of Hyatt Denham and beyond the world of, of Do, what pioneer initiatives or individuals most excite you? If you're looking to pay it forward and say, hey, keep an eye on this initiative or this individual or this company, who excites you? I don't know if it's an individual, but I do. Interestingly, I, I, we've got a shareholder in Hyatt Denim, and he's only really emailed us three times in 10 years. And once was to say, well done for Meghan Markle. And the other time was, you know, can you accept Bitcoin on your website? And this was in 2012. And I went, oh, yeah. Uh, and I sort of knew a little bit about it. And then emailed early in January 2013. So can you just accept Bitcoin on your website. I think it's going to be a big thing. So we did. And at that point, I started learning about this other world that's happening. And to answer your question is, I think something's happening with money. I think money is about to get its moment in terms of it's going to be changed. And I think there's some young coders out there that are fundamentally changing the money system and of course the banks won't like it you know traditional companies won't like it but they're developing like web three 
zero. And and if you think about you know cryptocurrency in one way, you can think, oh, it's you know I don't know about it, I don't understand it. But if you think about it, is in terms of the blockchain, the blockchain is going to build a safer internet. And if there were a, a billion or two billion hacks last year, it can tell you that actually, you know, the internet was built for boffins to send white papers to boffins. It wasn't built for the thing that it's doing today. And that space is perhaps the most innovative business models that I've ever seen. And if you think about a games company called Axie Affinity, and their business model is play to earn. If you actually play it, you will earn by playing it. And so they're doing business models that I've never seen before. But I know that like there's coders, you know, like, you know, they're changing business models through code. And it's fascinating. Love it. Money's about to get its moment. So David, we need to wrap up. There are loads of reasons then for people to want to know more about these different initiatives that you're leading. What's the best way for them to connect with Hyatt Denham and the Do Lectures? Just Google, you know, like the Do Lectures, you know, go and see the website, Hyatt Denham, go and see the website. And I mean, I'm sort of trying to blog most days on LinkedIn. I'm I'm just going to uh, like the gym. I'm trying to stay fit in terms of words. So I'm trying to task myself with writing each day. So I'm, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just writing for us to think about things. And, and I think that's always an interesting way. You do write beautifully. So I recommend people Thank you very much. visit your blog, visit your, your blogging on LinkedIn. And you have some beautiful books as well, which they can actually buy. Not much of it probably ends up with you, but there are some beautiful books out there. Yeah, which yeah. Are no, worth, buy the box. Yeah. <laughs> worth checking it out as well. Look, David, thank you so much. It's been an inspiration hanging out with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Pioneers Wanted. My pleasure. Thank you very much. It was super cool to hang out with David. I've enjoyed following him for a while. And I think his story and his aspiration is an inspiration to me and to many, many others. Particularly want to thank him for recording that from uh, his cow shed uh, on the coast of West Wales as the storm came in. Now, you know what to do. Go and find him on LinkedIn and follow him there. But his wonderfully made jeans and books are available both at Hyatt Denham and on Amazon and other great booksellers. You won't regret it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like, subscribe and review us. Go to pioneerswanted.com to buy a hardback copy of the Pioneers Wanted book or to Amazon to get the ebook or audiobook. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com or follow me on Twitter at PJA Clark. Thank you.